Support for this podcast has been provided by Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, making money meaningful. Every time I would finish the speech, a couple people would come up to me and say, I'm in, I love this idea of Startup Nation, I want to make investments, find me a startup. And I said, what do you mean find you a startup? He said, no, you know, you're, you're a venture capitalist, you're an angel investor, you're an entrepreneur. Go ahead and find me a place to give, uh, you know, twenty-five or fifty or $100,000 investment. I'd be much appreciative. I said, well, I'm not running a venture fund anymore. You know, you can call Chemi Paris and Patango and other people. I said, no, 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 I'm not, I'm, I'm not writing a multi-million dollar check. I want to make a relatively small investment, but I, I really want to do this. How do I do it? This is Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. My name is Yigal Marcus. Thank you for joining us. In this podcast, we'll meet the entrepreneurs who have personified the economic miracle known as the Startup Nation, the State of Israel. We'll learn about the culture which helped incubate them and their ideas. We'll learn of their successes and of course their failures. And we'll explore why it is that Israel develops some of the leading innovators of our time. When you think about the term Startup Nation, made famous by a book written by Dan Senor, it is hard not to think of John Medved. John personifies the startup nation, an entrepreneur who is innovative, very smart, super driven, and unafraid to take risks. And all of that could have been said before John sought to utterly disrupt the venture capital industry as we know it today. You see, when an investor invests in a traditional venture capital fund, the minimum required investments to participate are usually prohibitively high. And that effectively discourages investment from private investors into young, exciting companies. But crowdfunding has changed all that. For the first time, accredited investors now have the ability to invest small amounts of money into potentially great startups through online crowdfunding platforms. These platforms aggregate these individual investments into a single investor group giving that group the gravitas of a professional. And in many cases, they have particular expertise to help the young companies grow. In fact, equity crowdfunding investments have nearly doubled each year since 2012, reaching over $2.5 billion as of 2017. And that's where John Medved comes into the picture. In 2012, John launched his own startup, a crowdfunding platform called R-Crowd. Today, our crowd has raised over a billion dollars for young companies. They have 170 portfolio companies with almost 30 exits under their belt. They have offices all over the globe and they have become the largest and arguably most successful crowdfunding platform in the world. This is their story. We are very happy today uh, to have with us John Medved who is, uh, many refer to him as, you know, one of the founders of the startup nation. But in reality, he's the founder of a company called Our Crowd, which uh, has fundamentally uh, re-engineered the venture capital business, not just in Israel, but, but around the world. Uh, and what's nice about it is that they're changing the world, but it's really an Israeli startup nation story about looking at, a, at an industry and saying, you know, how are we gonna do this differently? So uh, we'll get to our crowd in a second, but John, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, really appreciate it. You're a very busy person. I know you've got flying out of here soon. You've got other meetings coming up, but we really do appreciate your time. Delighted to be here, Yigo. Let's talk about you personally. 
uh, born on the West Coast, San Diego, at a very interesting time in American history. Sure. I, I, I was uh, born at the peak of the baby boom in 55. So uh, born in San Diego, my parents had um, moved out there with a bunch of other Jews who wanted to escape uh, sort of the centers of Jewish life because out in San Diego, there wasn't that much. Um, my father was a surfer. Uh, and Professionally? He, no. <laughs> no. He looked pretty good on the board. Uh, but no, my father was actually professionally a rocket scientist and uh, came out to San Diego to work with... Uh, was called General Atomic and General Dynamics, and he did rocket science. Uh, and then, you know, after work, he would get his board, and, and we lived in a place called Pacific Beach. Um, he was uh, recruited into a startup, believe it or not, in the 60s, and that company- They had startups back then? Yep, there were startups. <laughs> so I'm a second generation of startups. I mean, you could even make the case that his father, who was a barrel maker and used to do bootlegging during the prohibition, maybe that was a startup of sorts, but I'm, I'm certainly second generation startup material. So my dad's uh, first startup was a company called Electro Optical Systems. It's bought by Xerox, the guys who really- were instrumental in uh, creating startups out of Xerox Park, And so um, I grew up in a house where there was a lot of talk about both business and science, um, but I wasn't really interested in that stuff. I was interested primarily in politics and history. And uh, I was one of you know uh, four brothers. Uh, my older brother, Michael Medved's a pretty well-known uh, radio talk show host and uh, author, you know, very much into politics. And did you agree with Michael in politics or did you see? We, I, I was a little more liberal than he was. Okay. okay. Um, he went to Yale. I went to Berkeley. Uh, he that never, explains he a lot. never inhaled. I did. <laughs> um, so you're in Berkeley. What do you expect? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, in any event, um, I went off to college. I had a pretty typical upbringing, you know, active in the anti-war movement, working for the farm workers, uh, tutoring uh, kids in the, in the inner city. Were you and a hippie? I was, I was a hippie. I had <laughs> long hair. I hung out. Um, it was fun. It was really uh, a nice time to be, be alive. And I'm, I'm lucky that I didn't you know, uh, get uh, affected by any of the dark side of that, uh, that culture. Um, and I was just looking to, you know, to change the world. And I went to Berkeley. And uh, after my freshman year, my, uh, I wanted to go abroad and I asked my parents whether they would cover a trip to uh, a Spanish speaking country because I spoke Spanish pretty well coming from LA. And they said, nothing doing. The only place we'll cover you is if you want to go uh, visit Israel. You have cousins there. You need some Jewish seasoning. And this sort of came out of the blue. But this I is what year? This is like in- Well, this is 1973 in the summer before wow. the Yom Kippur War. Wow, right before the war. So showed up here that summer, absolutely loved it. Actually wanted to stay. I was invited by uh, one of my madrichim, one of my uh, program counselors who said, come down to the Suez Canal because we play volleyball and drink vodka and whatnot. And I, again, talked to my parents about that idea and they canned it and said, no way, come back. <laughs> A week later, uh, I was watching pictures of the war and these people uh, you know, could have been my counselors being dragged off in um, you know, uh, handcuffs or, or worse. And at Berkeley, there was like a mini war. And uh, there were these huge rallies about death to the Jews. 
and it really freaked me out. In and, Berkeley? In Berkeley. Now, Berkeley's a little ahead of its time. And, and that got me really hot and bothered and uh, started a sort of campus Zionist career, even though I really didn't even know what Zionism was at that point. And became, because I had some kind of political background, became very active in organizing Jewish students, so much so that a couple of years later, I was recruited by the Jewish agency to go around campuses in the Western United States uh, with a 16 millimeter film projector and as much propaganda as I could use to go organize Jewish students. And ultimately, I made Aliyah in 1980 wow. and uh, came here probably, I, I studied history at, at Berkeley, so I figured I was going to go you know, either go on for a law degree or do politics. And in the meantime, I was making some money by doing informal tour guiding. And my father shows up um, to see how I'm doing. And he asks if I will take him to go meet some scientists who were um, working uh, on missile projects for a, a group called Raphael, which is the Israeli missile people, the guys who bring you Iron Dome and other things like that. So I said, sure, Dad, we'll do this. Well, I'll, I'll take you up there, go to meet them. Because my father at that point had a new startup in fiber optic communications, uh, which he had started in our basement. And um, at the end of this meeting, which was interminably boring because I didn't understand a word they were saying, one of them turns to me and says, okay, so what are you doing, Medved Jr., in Hebrew? And I told him, you know, tour guiding and hanging out. And he said, total waste. Why aren't you helping your dad? And first of all, I felt like slapped, right? Why, why isn't he dancing the horror with me saying, welcome home to the Holy Land, brother. <laughs> and he's calling my life a waste. But I, I said, I don't get it. He goes, look, you don't, you don't get it. Your father's, what he's doing with his fiber optics, that's what we need. We don't need another tour guide. And um, this was 1982. Uh, the first venture capital fund in Israel was established in 1986. And in 1982, after my father left, he left me a promise to give me $100 a month if I would represent his startup's interest, which had a total of six employees in Israel. It was really an excuse, I think, to make me feel good about taking some money, which covered at that time about two-thirds of my rent. And But I took it seriously. And I said, you know what, maybe I can build a factory here. So I ran around to various companies in Israel talking about fiber optics at the end of that process, um, a couple of years later, I actually raised uh, $600,000 of investment from a company called ECI Telecom. Uh, and that was my first deal and my first startup. And together with my dad, built this company called Merit Optical Communications, which we uh, successfully sold in an exit to Amoco, which is today British Petroleum in 1990. So it didn't happen in a, in a year. And uh, then I was launched, you know, and, and my next company was a, uh, a company in multilingual software for what was emerging then as the internet. It was called Accent Software, and that company went public in uh, 1995. Just before it went public, uh, I exited the company personally and was able to start a venture capital fund called the Israel Seed Partners, which was one of the first venture funds in that wave of companies that were set up. Uh, as part of this the, is in the 90s, right? This 90s, yeah. 90s. It, was, it was 95. When it was we, still before the startup nation as we know it, right? This is right. before... I mean, it was just early days, right? In those days, a big venture fund, I mean, we started with $2 million in my basement. Right. I took a lead from my dad. 
And uh, I had some great partners, a guy named Michael Eisenberg, who's now at Olive, and Alan Feld, who's now at Vintage, Neil Cohen, and uh, ultimately raised about $260 million in Israel's seed and made 60 investments, including companies like Shopping.com that was bought by eBay for $640 million and a host of others. So, so you, you actually preferred being the investor than being the operator? No, I, I, that's probably not true. Okay. I, I've been back and forth. So um, as soon as I finished my venture capital gig for 11 years, I went back to being an operator again. I started a company called Vringo in the video uh, ringtone business and built that in 2006, took it public on the New York Stock Exchange in 2010, uh, and then in 2012 exited that. And I proceeded at that point to go on a speaking tour because the old historian in me had always been interested in what was going on here in the whole story of Israeli startups. I had been involved accidentally, I guess, from day one, um, and had been called upon over the decades to speak and to write about this stuff. So as soon as I freed my myself from my last company, I went off to speak. And almost uh, like a clock, every time I would finish the speech, a couple people would come up to me and say, I'm in, I love this idea of Startup Nation, I wanna make investments, find me a startup. And I said, what do you mean find you a startup? He said, no, you know, you're, you're a venture capitalist, you're an angel investor, you're an entrepreneur, Go ahead and find me a place to give, uh, you know, twenty-five or fifty or hundred thousand dollar investment. And I'd be much appreciative. And I said, well, I'm not running a venture fund anymore. You know, you can call Chemi Paris at Batango and other people. I said, no, 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 I'm 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 not writing a multi-million dollar check. I want to make a relatively small investment, but I I really want to do this. How do I do it? I said, look, give me your card. I'll think about it. I'll get back to you. So these cards started stacking up. I uh, dutifully had my assistant put them into a uh, database, and I stacked the cards literally in shoeboxes and started getting a couple of shoeboxes high. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me, and I said, wait a minute. Maybe I can build a platform that would take all these shoebox cards and give them access to individual investments where I could use my venture capital skills and my entrepreneurial skills to build a platform where at scale, we would examine investment opportunities and then people around the world could actually make those investments. And that's how our crowd was uh, started. And by 2013, we were up and running. Today, we're about a billion dollars in uh, commitments raised, 170 companies invested in and 18 different funds. and. Uh, I guess the rest is history, as they say. Now, 2013 was before crowdfunding start. Well, I mean, it was the early days of Kickstarter and uh, Indiegogo. But the difference between them and what our crowd does is that you can back a cool project on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, but you don't get any equity, right? You get the uh, psychic joy of backing an entrepreneur and helping him make his gadget. Maybe you get a a half price gadget sent to you in the you know rare cases where they actually succeed in making it and shipping it um but you know our our kind of crowdfunding which is probably a misnomer but we use it anyway uh, is is very different because first of all we can only offer this opportunity to what are called accredited investors so in the US you have to have a million dollars of investable assets in different parts of the world there are different criteria but basically, you are certified by your country for investing in a private 
transaction. These are not publicly traded companies. These are startups. This is the, the area where venture capitalists until now have, have pretty much had an esoteric closed old boys club, no women allowed, unfortunately. Um, and uh, uh, what we did is we democratized this whole thing, right? We basically said, well, wait a minute, why does venture capital only uh, really appeal or allow a very small number of people to make these kinds of investments? And typically, you know, you want to get into a venture fund, you got to bring millions of dollars, you know, typical investment size is three or $5 million. You don't want to just write one check. So all of a sudden you're investing 20 million. Most of us can't do that. Okay. There are enough of us, by the way, who would like to invest 25 or 50 or a hundred thousand dollars. So to allow people to do that was quite, um, interesting, but I wanted to do it in a way that wasn't, uh, just giving people sort of uh, second best, you know, what we call in Hebrew sugbet or, you know, grade B deals. I wanted the A plus deals. I wanted the, uh, our members at our crowd, because we chose the name our crowd to be sort of exclusive. It's named after a book that was written about the Jewish bankers of New York in the 19th century, the Zeligmans and the Warburgs and whatnot. Uh, I wanted them to get into the good deals, the deals that are alongside the Sequoia or Microsoft or Bill Gates. And I thought that was what made this so, you know, sort of revolutionary and disruptive that all of a sudden you have a wealthy Thai dentist in Brooklyn and this gentleman actually exists who's able to put $10,000, that's our minimum, into a deal that Bill Gates is also investing, not 10 grand because I don't think that moves the needle for Bill, but millions of dollars at the same price in the same kind of paper buying the same what's called preferred stock, which has special rights of anti-dilution and preemptive rights and whatnot. So you get all the big boy treatment. You're managed by a platform that understands venture capital so that we select the deals carefully, but then manage the money afterwards, aggregate all these guys into a single unit, write a single check to the company. So the company doesn't have hundreds of people on their capitalization table, nor need to manage them but bring the energy from these hundreds of people and all their connections worldwide so that you're not just money, but you're a value-added investor to these companies. And that, that's the, been sort of the basic idea, and it's worked out really well. Due diligence for private clients is always a big issue, meaning, you know, as a private investor, I always, you know, the startup space is very exciting. Great opportunities, great ideas. The concern I always have is, you know, am I assessing this company right? Am I, I'm, I can trust my instinct, but, you know, what does our crowd do in terms of vetting out companies, trying to really put, as you said, that those A-plus deals in, in front of well, you? Well, first of all, you have to be proactive. You don't wait for deals to come to you. If you're waiting for someone to send you something over the transom or to approach you, you're waiting too long. You have to go out there and hunt the right entrepreneurs. You know, classic way to do it is, you know, you know somebody uh, who you've worked with in the past. They perhaps built a company, just had an exit two years ago. They've, you know, their non-compete is over. You take that guy to lunch, okay? What are you doing? And that's the kind of, you know, uh, sort of insider lore that the smart venture capitalist or one of my team, you know, excels in. And then, you know, you essentially become a partner because today 
there's a lot of money out there. You know, I know it's hard to hear from some entrepreneurs who are struggling to get funded, but money has become a commodity. And so the, the trick for the investor side is to really prove that you can provide not just a better check or a better term sheet at a higher valuation, but you can provide more value because the smart entrepreneur knows that this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. You want to get to that billion dollar, you know, unicorn status and get an exit. You don't just need the money. You need the help. You need smart people on your board who are going to give you good guidance and good governance. You need connections to potential customers. You need help recruiting key members of your team, whether it's a VP of marketing, which is always a you know sore spot for a lot of Israeli companies and whatnot. So the smart entrepreneurs are choosing the people with value. Now, the, the diligence that we do is very similar to the you know best practice in uh, venture capital, which starts with both focusing on the people, on the team itself. Are these people of passion, of great experience? Are they super bright? Where do they come from? What's their back? Who knows them? Are they jerks? Do they not listen? You know, you want to do a lot of that. So we actually run people through HR screens and, and we call kinds of references about the people. Then we get to the technology and the market. The market's got to be huge. It's got to be something which is growing. We're not just looking for a, a market share play where you're trying to just displace somebody who's already got a market share. We're looking for markets themselves that are growing, you know, usually double-digit annual uh, growth rates at the market level. And then we're looking for a really differentiated product or solution approach that often is based on deep technology. Because if you're here in Israel, you know, while there are some examples of successful marketplaces and uh, business model innovations, if it's not going to be deep tech and have some kind of real technology uh, barrier to entry, then I think your, your chances are less successful. Is that an order of, of priority? It begins with the team and ends, you know, if you don't get past the first level. Yeah. I mean, look, in, in, um, you know, in, in, in real estate, the adage is there are three most important rules, location, location, location. In, in startup investing, there are three rules, and it's team, team, team. Okay, it really is the team. And uh, then, you know, I, I typically look at market size as a, a next criteria because here in Israel, the technology usually rocks. Sometimes we get the markets wrong. Sometimes you have you know, solutions looking for a problem. Very often you do. So the question of what we call product market fit is really important. So that, you know, whatever that technology or that product or solution that has been developed has a, the right kind of market waiting for it. Why should investors invest in this, in, the, in this asset class. I'm a financial advisor, sure. full, full disclosure. I think my, my listeners know that I, I, I advise private clients. Um, so I know the answer, but, but uh, in your mind. So I, I think it's really simple. The, um, the reality today is that the companies that really count are tech companies. The biggest companies in the world are tech companies. Five biggest are all tech. I think it's eight out of 10 of the other biggest are tech. And every company, even the, the old style, you know, transportation or oil and gas or ag companies, they're all being uh, driven by the need to innovate. 
They're afraid of being disrupted. They are all desperately seeking technology. So as a smart investor, you know that tech is not just a bubble or, you know, the, uh, you know, flavor du jour or flavor of the year. It is a, you know, trend which has a mountainous, you know, secular momentum behind it. And you've got to be investing in tech, broadly speaking. But you also understand that unlike 30 or 40 years ago, when you could wait for the public markets to do their job properly and bring you early stage tech opportunities, in those days it was Microsoft or Apple, Oracle or Amazon, where you could buy into those companies, believe it or not, below a billion dollars because there wasn't this concept of the unicorn. And then you could buy those companies and ride them, you know, literally to a thousand X return. Meaning if you had brought a hundred thousand dollars, you turn that into a hundred million dollars by sitting on an Apple or sitting on a Microsoft and just letting, you know, the market do its magic. That opportunity is no longer available to you as a smart investor. The reason is because there is so much capital in the private area. These companies delay and delay and delay they're going public. So I think just recently we've, you know, been reading about the upcoming IPOs for Lyft and Uber. I was about to say, I mean, what, $20 billion valuation? For, for, for Lyft and hopefully 100, 120 for Uber. How are investors going to make money in those? Well, let's hope they do, because that's good for the markets. But certainly- They're not going to see a thousand. They're not going to see a thousand. <laughs> that much we can say with, I think, a fair degree of certainty, that the chances of these companies returning a thousand X is- near to zero. And the question is, is somebody making a thousand X today? And the answer is absolutely. It's the people who invested early and privately at Uber and Lyft. People who got into Uber, I think the original round was at 5 million pre. Okay, do the arithmetic. So the question is, how do the rest of us get into those kinds of deals early or at least early enough so that you can maybe not make a thousand X, but you can make 10 X or 20 X or 30 X. Okay. Because that's what smart investors make in these private tech companies. And that's why the asset class matters. Now you've you got to be careful about over allocating, right? In other words, as a financial advisor, you know that allocation theory changes from time to time, but basically uh, venture capital is the most esoteric and sexy of what's called your, your alternative asset bucket. And depending upon who your advisor is, they're telling you to put somewhere between, you know, 15 to 30% maybe in alts, usually 20% is a good solid number. And of that 20%, maybe 10 or 20% of that should be venture. So venture shouldn't be more than anything from like two to 5% of your portfolio. And you say, well, then what the hell, what does it matter, right? Why, 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 do, I, why do I need that? And the answer is you do, because this uh, very sexy asset class can really, you know, excuse the phrase, goose your returns, can get you much, much better um, exposure to alpha and, and to, you know, getting you know, really good returns. So you don't want to go crazy. I mean, you know, uh, some of the more aggressive investors in venture, like the Yale Endowment, have about 10% of their assets in venture, which is wonderful. But for the average person, 5% is enough. But 
that's where our crowd comes in. And so if you have, you know, call it $2 million of assets and uh, you're listening and you say, okay, I've got to put 100,000 into venture, how do we do that intelligently? And the answer is it's hard because you can't go to a venture fund. They're not taking $100,000, okay? At least the funds that you want to be into. Um, and so at our crowd though, we have, uh, for example, diversified portfolios like something called our crowd 50, which literally takes a $50,000 investment and splits it over 50 different um, uh, startups, $1,000 each. Right now, the uh, unrealized net IRR is over 20%, which is a you know pretty good number for any uh, investor. Hard to find those in the markets. Well, that days. thank God we're, we're you know let's hope it's, it stays and improves. Um, you know, but we have 18 different funds where you can actually get into a venture capital fund or a diversified portfolio for a minimum of 50,000. We also let people then pick their own startups on our platform for a minimum of 10,000. So you could literally say, you know, I'm going to build my own portfolio of, of 10 companies, um, which is where the diversification really sets in. You've got to make sure that you don't just try to pick one or two companies, whether it's on our crowd or anywhere else. If you, you know, listening and you say, well, I'd like to play at this angel investing in venture capital thing. Go ahead and do it. Do your diligence and your homework. Make sure you get access to the good deals. But please don't just make one or two investments because that's a real mistake. The, the uh, nature of this asset class is high risk, high potential reward, high degree of failure. And therefore, the only way to do this intelligently is to make sure that you have a real spread that starts with 10 uh, individual companies, or hopefully even a couple of funds. Right. The last thing you want is your clients to take all their savings and put it into this. God because, forbid. Because it, it won't end well. It could not end well. And we never yeah. want to risk that. The way we look at it at Bernstein, and, and you and I have talked about this in the past, is that clients should really plan. And when they do good investment planning, they'll many cases realize that they do have a substantial amount of money they can allocate to this kind of asset class. By the way, that's what, and they should. I, I think that's what Bernstein it. has always been, you know, super at is helping people um, be rational about this. Okay, to think about it because most people are just, you know, gut investors and they have a feeling and a notion and it's just take a few minutes and sit down and do, you know, you can even be back of the envelope, but just some degree of planning uh, I, I think is a really important thing. Sustainable investing these days, you know, many people would call it tikkun olam in Israel. This, uh, this mantra that we want to help the world has become a very popular uh, theme in investing, not just for individuals, but for institutions. People want to make the world a better place. What are you seeing in Israel? Um, I think this is really uh, an extraordinary moment for uh, what I would call impact investing or social impact investing. We uh, focused our our crowd Global Investor Summit, which was just a couple of weeks ago. That was, by the way, an amazing Thank event. You. I it mean, was, it was. You know, I urge your listeners, if you guys are listening and want to hear more stories live from the startup nation, come to the uh, our crowd Global Investor Summit. Uh, we don't charge for entrance. We had eighteen thousand plus registered, hundreds of startups, and 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 really compelling stories as well as investment opportunities. So um, this year we focused on impact investing, how to 
make money and do good at the same time? Because I think most people in the world think that you really have to choose one or the other, right? You can either be sort of a very hard-fisted capitalist or you could be a you know starry-eyed do-gooder, but the two don't really mix together. They're wrong. Um, it turns out that some of the really big challenges facing the world happen to be areas where you can make a lot of money. Um, and therefore, we believe firmly in what we call the double bottom line, which is the ability to do good and to make money at the same time. You build a company that is solving, for example, uh, you know, a key area in rehabilitation and disability, such as, you know, how do we reinvent the wheelchair? Right. So we've, you know, we've seen some motorized wheelchairs, but we have a company called Up and Ride, which actually allows uh, disabled people who are quadriplegics to be brought upright. So much so that um, we had a, a gentleman on stage who literally had used Up and Ride to be upright with his wife under the chuppah. Under he actually the, surprised her. Yes. <laughs> that was unbelievable. Where, you know, he's riding in. And, and that's. That's one of these things where there are 70 million wheelchair users in the world. It's a lot of, it's a big market. And, and therefore, creating a company that restores dignity, and by the way, it's really good health-wise to be upright, gets the body working, and these people, you know, there are definite health benefits there. This is a win-win. You can make money producing these uh, devices as well as, as do good. And this goes across so many different areas, whether it's agriculture, so Israel, of course, you know, leads the world in water everything. We don't have much here, except it's been a good rainy season this year, thank God. Um, but you can make money by helping people save water, and that's good for the planet. That's going to uh, allow us to grow more food. You can increase yields, okay, and help people feed the planet as well as uh, you know, be more efficient as farmers. We have a lot of companies now that are working on big data in the farm. Uh, companies like Consumer Physics that make a little tiny mass spectrometer that is being used to measure uh, hay that is fed to, you know, dairy cows. Uh, companies like Tyrannus that are doing aerial surveillance and can actually see the sex of an aphid underneath a leaf as it's picked up by a crop duster. I mean, incredible stuff that has huge impact and yet will, I think, deliver very significant returns to the investors. And this goes into climate or into uh, education, healthcare. There are so many challenges that need you know, uh, attention where the world really does need fixing, hence this tikkun olam, which is a you know, sort of very basic uh, Jewish premise. But we want to be able to offer these as investment opportunities where people can both do good and make money at the same time. Our crowd's actually expanding now to include non-Israeli companies, but I guess the heart still is, is right here in Jerusalem. That's correct. Well, about 70% of our deals are still Israeli deals, but 30% now are outside of Israel. We had some spectacular overseas companies uh, on stage. We had a great company called The Books who are doing direct flower uh, shipments from farms in Latin America to the U.S., cutting out all kinds of middlemen, giving more money to the farmers in Latin America, better flowers, uh, more healthy flowers, more sustainable, it's fair trade, okay, uh, and the company's doing great. We had uh, a company from China doing travel services called Kluke 
up on the stage. And, and we have a, a whole host of other, you know, companies running from Canada to the uh, England to China, uh, in addition to our Israeli cohort. A couple more questions, because I want to respect your time. And I definitely have to get you back on the show because I, I have like t- tens of pieces of paper here with questions and I we just don't have time to get to everything in, in, in one sitting. Uh, what motivates you personally? You've been a very successful entrepreneur. You've built companies. You've built this company. You've raised a lot of money for our crowd. How much have you raised now for our crowd? It's- well, we've raised, you know, in terms of our internal raising, over $100 million for ourselves. And, um, you know, on the platform, it's now uh, about a billion a billion. Plus. So, look, this is really... Um, one of the world's great jobs. I'm very, very blessed to, to do this. I mean, it's a, a lot of work. I don't get a lot of sleep. Um, I've been dreaming of some vacation, <laughs> which I hope to get soon. Um, but to sit around, I don't really sit that much. I'm usually a lot of walking around, but to be with entrepreneurs who are pitching you their dreams and to be in a position to be an enabler, to be a partner in making those dreams true, doesn't get better than that, right? In other words, when you're meeting these people who are brilliant, who are passionate, um, my problem is that I want to say yes to them all, and you can't, right? Because you have to be very selective. We select about 2% of the deals that we look at. So um, if you do send us your uh, business plans or ideas or reach us, you know, please understand that we can't do all of them. We can only do uh, a small fraction, but... That in itself is a is a, is a great joy. Um, being able to uh, make money for people is a joy. Being able to um, help solve these problems. We have a company in our portfolio called Alpha Tau that's developing a new therapy for cancer, and their early clinical trials show that seventy percent of the solid tumors that they are treating disappear in a matter of days. Now. I'm very sensitive that, you know, I don't want to create hope where uh, there's so much tragedy around cancer around the world. But this is, you know, real data. And there are real companies who are taking big bites out of some of these challenges. We have a company called Zebra Medical who are uh, using artificial intelligence to essentially automatically uh, interpret radiological images like CTs or MRIs. They just, a matter of days ago, signed a deal with the largest healthcare uh, chain of hospitals in Asia. It happens to be in India called Apollo Hospitals. So you imagine that now the most cutting edge technology really in the world in terms of artificial intelligence, machine learning, is now going to be deployed in India, okay, to help people live better lives. That is the essence of that sort of sustainable investing or impact investing. And final question, Israel. Why is Israel a startup nation? What is it about Israel that creates entrepreneurs that are literally changing the world? Because we are experts in turning curses into blessings. It's been that way from the beginning. Um, You know, you can go back to your Bible and look at the story of uh, Bilam and Balak you know, the blessing which uh, traditional Jews say when they enter a synagogue is from this guy who tried to curse us. How goodly are thy like tents, so people, you know, Israel. Um, we were cursed here without any water. We turned ourselves into experts in water. 
recycling, desal, drip irrigation. Uh, we don't have much of a market in this country. Guess what? We go global. We become global market leaders. Um, we have to send our kids to the army, okay, where they sleep in the dirt and they risk their lives. Turns out that's a blessing. They mensch up, they become leaders, they work in teams, they have great technology. Um, we are a tiny little country without natural resources, so we have to focus on human resources. Uh, we have the highest percentage of, uh, you know, civilian uh, R&D per GDP. We have the highest percentage of Nobel Prize winners. 50% of our kids graduate from four-year institutions of higher learning. And then finally, you know, we we live with existential risk here. People, Some of people would like us to disappear. We've turned that into a blessing. We focus on life. When we drink, we say l'chaim to life. Uh, we have a very high life expectancy. Right now, the entire population of Israel, Jews, Arabs, everybody together, we're like seventh in the world. Um, we have uh, the most fertile uh, country in terms of children per woman of the entire OECD. It's now 3.1, okay, where we're just producing kids, and that's a, a life-affirming thing. So it also has an impact on, on business because when you realize that you know, we're all here for a very short, unfortunately, way too short period of time, even with long life expectancy. You have to take risk, okay? You have to take smart risk, but you have to take risk. Without risk, great things don't happen. And so here, people do want to create startups. They want to, you know, create great science or even today now, great movies and TV. And there's this passion for creation. And I, I, I think it all goes into... Uh, a long tradition here of being partners with God in creation. The world was made in six days, and not not only did he rest on the seventh, but he said, you guys got to help me finish the work. And I think that whether you're observant or not, traditional or not, that zest for creativity and the passion for fixing the world and making the world a better place runs deep here in Israel, and that's what drives the startup nation. And that's really the story of our crowd. Our crowd, um, first of all, your website, ourcrowd.com, uh, for any um, of our listeners who may be interested in learning about the company, about their portfolios, and about potentially becoming a customer. They have now more than 30,000 registered investors on their, on their platform. They've vetted 10,000 companies. They've raised more than a billion dollars. They have 170 portfolio companies. And 15 of those companies have values over a hundred million dollars. So the success has been, has been wild. John, thank you very much for your time. Um, I have to get you back on the show again. I Cause I want to, I, I want to jump into every, like I'm taking copious notes here, I look but we got to, we got to get, we got to do it. And, um, and hopefully in the coming weeks, we're going to hear from our crowd companies, uh, and some of their, their best ideas and, and most exciting opportunities. But again, thank you. And, uh, good luck traveling. Thank you. Get some sleep. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. I'm the host, Yigal Marcus. The associate producers are Moshe Raps and Avi Maklis, and the senior research analyst is Lior Levin. If you have a startup that you think we should feature on air, please email me at yigal.marcus at bernstein.com or at startupstoriesisrael at gmail.com. No good startup in Israel is too big or too small. A big, very special thank you to my employer, Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, who has been incredibly supportive of this initiative. And please, share these podcasts with your friends, 
like us on Facebook, and please, please, please rate us on iTunes. Until next time, thank you for listening.